You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 26 with Dawn Lundine. She is a registered dietitian and owner of Restore Ease Dietetics LLC, which is a virtual nutrition private practice focusing on eating disorders and sports nutrition. She has run 19 marathons, so <laughs> that's a few, and is a certified personal trainer. She works mostly with adolescents and their families and young adults through eating disorder recovery and is passionate about educating athletes and individuals seeking movement to honor a sustainable relationship with food and movement. So during our conversation, you'll notice we're talking about exercise, not as the villain, not as a thing that we have to cut out and not as the thing that we need to do, sort of developing a healthy relationship with exercise. This is an important conversation because I don't think that we've isolated the piece about exercise by itself in its own conversation. We'll be talking about athletes and non-athletes, which are slightly different, but something to apply to all of you because a lot of it is about the relationship with yourself and exercise. So let's just jump right in. First of all, Dawn, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I'm excited we finally get to do this with all the COVID and flu going on. We had to sort of reschedule and try again. And now I'm congested, but we sound good. But thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So maybe before we jump into our topic, just to kind of share a little bit about you and your background and, and the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a registered dietitian and I'm also an endurance athlete. So I've ran 19 marathons. So not only do I have experience, yes, 19, um, with, you know, working with people in regards to their relationship with food, but I've also had my own journey with relationship to exercise and, you know, trying to help my clients kind of like navigate that in their own lives. And I never was active as, you know, as a child and really even into high school, I had a, a heart problem as a kid. And so I really got into athletics as an adult and um, have really kind of embraced that like active lifestyle. And along with that, I've seen kind of a lot of different things that can be worrisome or troublesome, not only in my own journey, but also with the clients that I work with. So I'm an owner of a nutrition private practice, Restore Ease Dietetics. And I work with clients who have eating disorders and also those um, with sports nutrition. And so I see a lot of this overlap with relationship with food and also relationship with exercise in my athletes and then also my clients that have active eating disorders. Yeah. So even when we say relationship with exercise, what do you mean? Yeah. So, you know, for some people, they may have a program or a plan. And as a runner, like, you know, you may be working with a coach or you may have a plan that you tells you like, oh, Dawn, you're going to run X many miles on this day. 
and that's great and all, right? Like there's some people who need to be motivated to work towards a goal, like a race or an event. But the relationship with exercise comes into play when you're actively thinking about how do I feel on this day? Do I have energy to complete that particular exercise? Do I have time in my day, in my schedule? And I think so many people are inundated, especially after the new year with this like never miss a Monday, hustle culture. You're only one workout away from a good mood. Like all of these things that are really telling you to override your body's intuition. And it's more or less like, yes, having a goal, but then also taking kind of like this assessment of how does your body feel stress-wise, energy-wise, physically, emotionally, mentally, and feeling like, is that exercise or activity like, will that serve me today? And I think there's a lot of people are missing that because they just want the end goal, whatever that end goal is, right? Whether it's a race or an event or or picking up a new hobby or things like that. Or even there is no particular goal. It's just, I want to work out to in, in some sort of disordered way to lose weight or to get stronger, which we can talk a little bit about more. But there's this idea that I have to work out in this way. It's like a rigidity. There are rules attached and I can't miss. What does it mean about me? If I miss, I did fewer than X amount of times this week or fewer than X amount of minutes in this workout. And there's a lot of almost... um self-worth attached to the exercise. And that's when the relationship to exercise kind of gets really complicated. Absolutely. And that's especially where I've seen clients or athletes that I've worked with where they start, like the exercise becomes more important than their own physical feelings or emotional feelings or, or stress or things like that. I mean, I started running in college. I started, I ran my half marathon, first half marathon as a freshman in college. And that was quite a few years ago. I think it was like 17 years ago. And so I really have just seen like in different spots in my life, how my reaction to like, say, taking days off or the length of time that I'm exercising, right? There was a time where I always felt like I had to exercise first thing in in the day because I didn't want anything else to interrupt it or to change that. And now being a mom to three kids, I'd have to wake up at like four in the morning if I wanted to work out alone. And I value my sleep (laughs) more (laughs) than making sure that my exercise happens at 4 a.m., right? Yeah, and that's also part of a broader picture of health that, you know, people equate movement with health. And, you know, that's not entirely untrue. There is part of health that includes some level of movement, but sleep is also part of health. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a balance. And I think, you know, when I'm working with athletes or clients and or even considering my own relationship with exercise, I try to consider all of those components, right? Like you said about sleep and does it allow active time for recovery? Like one of the things, like like I said, with like working out, you may have time to squeeze movement into your day, but if you're doing it in place of when you should be eating or sleeping, 
those are also very important parts of your day. And so really trying to like think about, is this just not feasible for me today if my day is really busy? Whereas I feel like a lot of the times on social media, it's like, well, everyone has 24 hours in a day. You're just not making it a priority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I it's like they're one, talking out of both sides of, yeah, I know, right? And sometimes, and that, and, it, and that tends to have people choosing movement when they maybe should choose rest or when they maybe should choose sleep. And, you know, times, especially like, you know, if they have an injury or if they are sick and, you know, you hear so many people who are Googling, like, should I run with a head cold or COVID or the flu? And that's really bypassing your body's signals of saying, you're not feeling well. You really need to just rest and do the bare minimum. And that doesn't include working out today. And that's okay. Yeah. And I'll go one step further. That's actually preferable because if your body is telling you at a time that it's not, let's say you're sick, that you should rest, then that's prolonging the illness. Or when you have an injury, then that means the injury might be long-term and then you'll need surgery or not be able to use it properly. And so you're actually making the problem a lot worse. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been my experience in my own journey, like with running and things like that. And I see it in my clients who are, you know, maybe struggling with an injury or an eating disorder. And it's really hard for them for many reasons. But like you said, too, they get this identity wrapped up in they're going to the gym or exercising, or if they're like a high school or a collegiate athlete, there's a lot of identity that is wrapped around movement And that's not necessarily always a good thing. Yeah. Well, I do want to sort of add here that there's two separate populations that we're talking about. There's a subculture of athletes, which is its own sort of category. And then there's kind of the non-athlete category in which movement is very, maybe it's a part of their life, but in a very different way from an athlete. So We can talk about a lot of these ideas and there will be a lot of overlap, but also just kind of putting out there that it is going to look different for an athlete, at least on the outside. Absolutely. And I've had, um, like just even using eating disorder clients as an example, right? Like if I have a client who, they may both have the same eating disorder diagnosis. And if I have an athlete who's on an, an athletic scholarship for college, my exercise recommendations are going to look different for both of those individuals because it's like viewing their sport as their job, right? Or if I'm, if I'm recommending a reduction or a restriction in activity, it's going to be that making sure that there are no other options for that client because it's going to impact a lot of other things that could potentially you know, kind of maybe potentially even cause a relapse with their eating disorder. So it's can be more helpful, you know, if you have someone who is maybe not used to being physically active or got more physically active kind of in relationship with their eating disorder. I see more and more, you know, we used to see clients that was just looking at their relationship with food. And now I see a lot more clients coming in with both, right? So they're restricting food and they're excessively exercising. 
Yeah. Well, maybe we can talk about for a second how they sort of impact each other in almost a compensatory nature. Absolutely. I think it stems back from just like what we hear in the news or even like social media, this whole idea that like, say if someone's in pursuit of weight loss or they think that by losing weight, they'll be in a healthier body. They can get wrapped up at this idea that like, if I just eat less and move more, those things will happen for me, right? Like I'll automatically be healthier. And we equate that to like everything else in my life will be perfect. Oh, yeah. Which never (laughs) happens. It never happens, right? And so when someone is looking at changing their size or shape and using this relationship with food and this relationship with exercise as two modalities to make that change, it all stems back to like the person's well-being, like, you know, how are they feeling mentally, um, their stress level, their relationship with their body image. And so a lot of the times when someone is feeling down on any area of their life, really, you know, it causes the food intake to decrease in some situations and the exercise to increase. And they keep thinking that that's going to solve the problem. And in my experience, sort of calculation. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's really not as black and white as the influencers on social media want us to think. There's so many other things that impact our athletic ability. If we're an athlete, right. Or even just our own health. Like if you're looking at your cardiovascular health, your respiratory health, and your bone health, like those are the kind of the three systems that I always think about as having benefits in relation to exercise. And so I really try to remind my clients and people that are asking me for my advice as a dietitian is that you can really look at them in in like two separate columns. Like we can eat and have a healthy relationship with food, meaning we're honoring our body's hunger and fullness cues. We are eating foods that we crave and foods that we enjoy. And that can be one column. And the other column can be movement that we enjoy, movement that feels good in our bodies, movement that we like to do. I know not everyone loves running like I do, and that's okay. But you know, to find something that you enjoy doing, whether it's being outside, some people like the environment, the inside environment of a gym, some people's definition of movement looks very different than a gym environment. So whether it's being out on the mountain bike trails or whether it's being out on the lake paddle boarding or surfing, like that can all be very, very great ways to release stress and build all of those like benefits of exercise that are still going to like add to your life. Whereas so many get stuck in this rat race of like, not that all gyms are bad, right? But just saying that they have to be on this machine for that long and they have to lift this weight and do that thing. And they lose the enjoyment factor in it. And I see that happening in both of the relationship with food and the relationship with exercise. So I kind of see it as a correlation, like as control increases, 
enjoyment in food or exercise decreases. And I see that a lot in my eating disorder clients when food is involved. A lot of them will be using food as a coping mechanism. And then what happens is they also gravitate towards exercise as another coping mechanism, but they can't quite get themselves to learn other coping mechanisms that don't involve food or exercise. It's almost as if they're trying to run away from their emotional experience with the food. And then that doesn't work long-term, maybe just short-term. And so they're trying to get rid of it by doing the exercise and then they need to get rid of that. And so they just sort of go back and forth and back and forth. And this is usually what we see in sort of a, a binge purge cycle that, you know, when somebody thinks of purging, maybe the first thing that comes to their mind is self-induced vomiting. But exercise can very commonly become a form of purging. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that I've had clients related as too, as they'll, you know, sometimes with certain clients, they will also develop self-harm. And one of my clients' therapists said to them, your exercise is just a socially accepted form of self-harm. As is dieting. Yes, absolutely. And and when this when they had said that, like I still got goosebumps saying that, right? It's so true. And I think when you take that grain of, you know, that thought process of like, am I exercising to add to my life or am I exercising to punish myself for something I don't yet have or something I ate or some way that I'm feeling? Because sometimes it's so hard for us to sit with our emotions. Like when you're sad, just let yourself be sad. And if you need to cry, it's okay. But giving yourself permission to just feel versus, you know, acting with exercise or movement or whatever, it's easier said than done. And I totally, oh, I totally get that. But... <laughs> Another emotion I would add here, something that comes up so often is anxiety. And anxiety is like, I don't know, almost like a catch-all emotion at this point. Oh, I have anxiety. I feel anxious. But the term anxiety in that there's this sort of discomfort in the body coming from some form of fear and the avoidance of that anxiety, thinking about it feels uncomfortable for, for me to sit on the couch right now. I'm going to go run it out. Almost a, a literal running away from our feelings and that the exercise comes in and takes the anxiety away. I mean, we don't feel it. And then comparing that to when we either don't have the opportunity to exercise or whatever the situation is and the person doesn't engage in movement, that the anxiety is sky high that there's this sort of very intertwined relationship with movement and managing anxiety. And that when we say, maybe we should sort of limit movement to see what happens with the anxiety, sometimes that feels so, so uncomfortable, but it's imperative because then how do we deal with the anxiety if we're always running away from it or squashing it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, that's just something that people have to either be told, right? Like we need to limit these things. But I think so many people think like, well, it's healthier for me to run on the treadmill than it is for me to sit on the couch with my feelings. And I think it's getting away from that narrative. 
right? That we always need to be doing more. And one thing that my therapist had said to me quite a few years ago, and I, I repeat this to myself regularly, just because you should, or just because you could, doesn't mean you should, right? Oh, I so like, like that. You could get up and go for a run, but should you? And right, like you said, if you're feeling anxious about something, there are much more techniques like grounding techniques or breath work or other self-calming techniques that you can do anywhere, right? You could be in the bathroom. You could be on a train. You could be on a plane. It doesn't require you to have a way to exercise or move because you see that you see people pacing or nervously shaking their leg or, or what have you, right? But when we use the basis of these mental health conditions like anxiety, when we can base the treatment modality from within us, it's always within ourselves to be able to help with that situation. And I think a lot of this stems from the approach of sometimes mental health professionals, especially in more behavioral approaches in terms of mitigating depression and anxiety, that if you look at lists of coping mechanisms or distractions, and for somebody who doesn't struggle with an eating disorder, perhaps quite reasonable suggestions, uh, going for a walk or doing a workout, and something that for somebody who has an eating disorder or some sort of disordered eating or disordered relationship with exercise is actually quite harmful. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that a lot. And then when that, you know, say if clients are on like an activity restriction or if they're kind of on like modified bed rest, they may feel very, like almost like it's not fair, right? So like, like, how come I can't do that thing? Well, how come I can't go for a walk? And it gets to be like, they take it very personally or they'll try to say, I've had conversations with clients and they're trying almost to like negotiate, right? That they, well, I just need to get out of the house or I just need like insert any excuse here. They're trying to use that like seed of like, well, this would be good for my mental health, my anxiety, my depression. And most people who have say like an eating disorder, they have typically have some other mental health condition along with their eating disorder. And so it can be really hard sometimes when you're like, I understand that a walk would be enjoyable right now, um, but this is just not something that's going to positively impact your, your eating disorder recovery. And we really have to prioritize that. And I would say the same thing with exercise because I get that almost like a a challenge, right? Like when I'm talking to my clients about decreasing their physical activity or cutting it out altogether. And it's almost like this challenge of like, well, exercising is good for me. It's going to, you know, give me all these benefits. And I see it a lot more kind of as like orthorexia nervosa tends to be like on the rise. And for people who aren't familiar with that eating disorder diagnosis, it's fairly new. And it has to do with someone who is preoccupied with the cleanliness or the healthfulness of food. And so it can look very like innocent at first, right? Like they're trying to make healthy changes or they're trying to get in shape or, or what have you. Um, but it can and often does spiral out of control. And I feel like exercise 
can have the same type of thing happen as well. And also thinking about this sort of as an addendum to what you were just saying as movement and food too, but movement on a continuum. And so maybe we're not saying that for the rest of your life, you never move a muscle. But at this point, if this person is engaging in excessive exercise, that's also not good for their health. So sometimes we have to swing all the way to the other side to see how we can finally come to the middle. But that the terms bad for you, good for you, healthy are just like almost useless terms. They are. They're absolutely useless. And it can be really hard then as a clinician, right? So as a dietitian, you know, you have to be very, very cognizant about the the terms that you're using and knowing too that like, especially with Um, one of the things too, that just like sparked into my mind is a lot of my eating disorder clients, like numbers are very triggering and think about with exercise. Like, you know, I wear a, a, like a smartwatch, like everyone has these count steps or step counters and they have these estimates on like how many calories things take to do or burn. And a lot of them are very inaccurate, like in regards to estimating someone's nutritional needs, but people are taking them very much to heart. And that can be really damaging, especially when someone is recovering from an eating disorder. So there's a lot of calculations going on in this person's head, potentially in that they're saying, okay, If I work out X amount of time, then I'm earning whatever sort of food. And if I increase the time to a little bit more, then I can have two of them. But it's all some sort of calculation that isn't exactly a numbers calculation. It's not, it doesn't, our bodies don't work that way. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of guessing. It's a lot of guessing. And a lot of these, you know, you hear... If I hear one more Noom ad, I'm going to scream. Um, Or like my fitness pal and things like that, where especially when I'm talking to collegiate athletes, they're wanting that, they're looking for that information, right? How much does my body need? And the things that they have access to, the calculations vastly underestimate their nutritional needs. So then they're going, essentially going on a restrictive diet, even though they're possibly they might not be thinking that they are. And sometimes some of these eating disorders or patterns like disordered eating can start that way. Someone in the pursuit of health, or I should say in the pursuit of making changes to their lifestyle that could improve their physical health. And I think it can, you know, like you said, like the healthier or unhealthy, I think it's, you know, I think healthy can still be used as a framework in regards to like, you know, does this help my physical health or my mental health or my emotional health? But you're right. When we're saying this food is unhealthy, it's like, well, is it really (laughs) right? Like there's a time and a place for all foods. And I think that gets really, really misconstrued in regards to when people are trying to make specific dietary changes there's really a lot of false information out there. And I think with exercise, it has the same the same type of thing. And I feel like that misinformation is when people can develop some of this, like almost like an unsustainable relationship with food and exercise. Unsustainable in what sense? 
meaning like in the long haul, right? So Mm -hmm. like if someone's trying to eat very little or they're trying to exercise, say like for X many minutes a day, like what happens when they get sick? What happens when they get injured? What happens when they're on vacation, right? So when I think of a healthy relationship with food or, or I should say a sustainable relationship with food or exercise, it's something that ebbs and flows. And that's something that I've kind of like really taken aback in my in my own personal life is I recently had a, a running related injury and it's given me time to really reflect on how I used to feel when I was injured. And I used to feel like I needed to cross train or do other physical activity so that I wouldn't lose my running fitness. And it was this unrealistic expectation that my body wasn't able to run, but I was somehow supposed to still be at the top of my game, which just sounds so silly, right? Now that you say it out loud, yes. (laughs) Yes. But it's been so refreshing to, you know, like I said, have an injury and to know what my treatment plan is and to have taken many weeks off of running or exercise in general and to not have that frantic feeling of I'm missing out on something, right? Or that you're a bad person for not doing it. Like if you don't have time or if you can't because of an injury, then there's no reflection on your worth. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing that, you know, I feel fortunate that my work is very fulfilling and I have a family that I adore and love to spend time with. And there's other things that I can pour my energy into when I am not able to run or to be physically active like the way I want to. But I also feel kind of like what you were saying, going back to like someone exercising when they're sick or the extra stress of worrying about fitness when you're injured, is that those things take away from our body's ability to heal. And so by not stressing about those things and by finding movement that's appropriate for the stage of my injury, I feel like my stress level is very, very small compared to maybe being injured in another part of my life when maybe my relationship with exercise probably wasn't in the sustainable category. Yeah. I'm thinking about different sort of stages in life. We're talking about an injury, but also talking about, let's say when someone is pregnant and either they feel sick and they can't work out physically, or it's just a lot harder. And maybe a gentle walk is the most that they can do and the most appropriate thing that they can do. And that postpartum, there's a period of time that's actually indicated not to move. And that sometimes it feels, quote, wrong for some people not to move during those times. And actually, if we think about the sort of general picture of it, that's not true. Absolutely. And I think, and and I'm glad that you mentioned that because I have ran through three pregnancies. I have three sons and I do feel like that's one of the things that has helped me now. Like if I were to look back, because the last time I was injured was pre-children. And so now looking at that and having navigated my movement through pregnancy and the postpartum period, there's nothing to be gained with being hard on yourself when you are sick or when you are injured. And so many people associate physical fitness with discipline, hardcore discipline. 
When I feel like when you're able to be your best self, you're giving yourself grace and compassion when you need it. And I remember with my middle son, I had very bad morning sickness and my doctor actually felt like running actually helped with some of my nausea. And I felt like the days that I didn't run or couldn't run, I felt like my symptoms were heightened or I had more nausea. But um, I was pregnant in the summer. And one day, the only opportunity I had to run was it was well into the 90s. And I chose to take a nap that day because I was eight months pregnant. And I was like, there's no reason I should expect myself in the condition I am in, even though I'm in very good physical shape, just the risk of dehydration or really anything, it just wasn't worth it. So sometimes taking a nap or going to the beach and having access to like jump in the water or a pool or something is a better avenue. And I feel like with all of the emphasis on goals and exercise and the pursuit of health, it's really hard for individuals to think about and give themselves grace and think about like, well, what would feel the best for me today? Um, I know that we've touched on this a bit throughout our conversation, but even just sort of like in an organized question, what would you say are some red flags to look out for if somebody, you know, that might indicate someone's maybe challenged with their relationship with exercise or someone that they know? Yeah, I would definitely say rigidity. So having like a very, very rigid schedule so that say like if a if you have a change in your plans, if you're not able to move that thing around or to take the day off, then that is a red flag. Same thing with like hashtag no days off. That's always a red flag to me anytime someone doesn't even allow them like selves a day to rest a week off of exercise. And it may look like more than that, um, depending on your situation. And then also, yeah, when you are sacrificing other areas of your life to, for time for movement and meaning, you know, if it's time with your family or time with other obligations, like say work or your loved ones. Um, and then especially like a couple of the ones that we talked about, like sleep, and meals would be two big ones because those, you know, not getting enough sleep is going to impact your ability to have enough energy to move the next day. And then same thing when you're exercising during a time where you should have a meal and then you're not eating afterwards, you're not adjusting your schedule that can very easily, you know, kind of snowball into disordered eating or eating disorder. Yeah. Uh, Something I'm thinking about as you're talking, I don't even know if this is related, but it just popped into my head about the pursuit of strength. So some people who say, I don't exercise or move to lose weight. I'm not into this like diet culture thing. I'm just doing it to get in better shape or to stay stronger. And I guess this is even more complicated for an athlete. What would you say if someone said that? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it would just be like some real down to earth questions about like, well, what does strength look like to you? What things do you want to be strong for in your life, right? And so, I mean, so it's one thing if they're like, you know, an athlete and they're looking at injury prevention, like my current injury, I, there's some like 
strength activities, like weightlifting activities that are exercises that can help prevent that from reoccurring, right? Like sign me up, I'm all on board. But when I look at strength for myself, I want to be able to pull my youngest son in. It's almost like a toboggan, like because we cross-country ski here in Michigan. And um, it's a chariot, but it hooks up with like a harness and it's there's skis on the back of it. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, it, it's a crazy, crazy thing, but I love it because I can bring my kiddos with me and or to, you know, be able to push my son in the jogging stroller so that I can take him on a run with me. That's what strength looks like to me. And so again, if it's adding to your life, so that's where I see as being physically strong allows me to bring my child, one of my children with me and enjoy some fresh air and exercise and activities outdoors. Whereas if you're looking at strength and if it's aesthetics, right? Like if, if you're looking at looking a certain way or changing your body shape and size, that's not about strength. That's about vanity. So it's really having that like introspective questions of why is strength valuable to you and what will it add to your life? And most people will probably not have, not have a super great answer. Um, but, and that's just like being very honest with yourself. Yeah. One more question uh, before I let you go. I'm curious from your experience, how prevalent are eating disorders in athletes? And I, I'm asking this question partly because I'm thinking about some of my clients and, and if they were part of a team that very often the team shared an eating disorder, it was unfortunately like part of the culture. And so I guess I, I wonder, not even specific numbers, but but just in sort of general, the prevalence. Yeah, unfortunately, eating disorders are very common in the athletic space with athletes. Like you said, there can be some team dynamics, especially there's been instances that I've heard about in regards to like specific coaches making comments about, um, there's been professional athletes that have come out and said, oh, this specific coach I overheard them make this comment about my body and that caused me to eat less or exercise more and kind of go down that like disordered eating, eating disorder rabbit hole. And also, like you said, there's a lot of that culture, especially in like the female athlete space that not having a period is quote unquote normal. And, and obviously we, yes. And, and another thing that that's kind of come out recently too and I've had the same like kind of, I don't know if it's like an assessment or just kind of like a generalization is that when someone is in good physical fitness or physical health, that their resting heart rate is low. I was just going to say that after you're done, I was like, I'm going to say the pulse thing. Um, yep. Or yep. So, so pulse, true. blood pressure. And it's interesting because like I've had to start like explaining to my clients who have restrictive eating disorders that like the low pulse or the low heart rate is really looking at, they, they refer to it as a starved heart. So that that low heart rate isn't necessarily showing us someone's quote unquote athletic ability. It can also be showing us that their heart, the, the, the muscle that keeps their body alive is not getting enough energy. And that can be, especially in the patients that have orthorexia nervosa, who are in that pursuit of health or, you know, whether it's physical health, 
they think that that like low blood pressure and low heart rate is better. And that's not necessarily the case. And also, you know, in the medical world, people who are not so informed about treating eating disorders, some of these numbers are often overlooked when someone is actually has a diagnosable eating disorder and, and they sort of attribute it to being an athlete when in fact these either numbers or indicators are are quite scary. Yeah, I've had um, clinicians who have kind of like not even considered an eating disorder diagnosis because a client's body mass index has been quote unquote normal. Mm. But the client will have like, all eyes. of the other... Yeah, all of the other red flags, including like a low pulse or a low heart rate, um, variability in their their orthostatic vitals, all of these things. They'll have all of these other indicators that their body is under some type of stress or is not receiving the nutrition that it needs. And I remember seeing, I believe it was on Instagram, someone had said something in regards to that atypical anorexia is just is diet culture or weight stigma that you know that something someone being diagnosed with atypical anorexia is just weight stigma at work within our medical field and I wholeheartedly agree so yeah I do a lot of I do a lot of working with these physicians and educating them on you know especially um, I work the majority um, with adolescent clients and so you know helping to get their families, their caregivers to understand why these things are concerning. And then also to explain to the providers, this is why these are potential problems. And this is kind of what I would recommend. And sometimes you have to get very frank with clients, parents, and providers, because like you said, there just isn't that education out there on, you know, the risk factors of eating disorders and also kind of like what's the best mode of treatment or next step for these people. Well, on that wonderful note, um, (laughs) we'll wrap up here, but maybe before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So my practice website is www.RestoreEaseDietetics.com. And I'm also RestoreEaseDietetics on Instagram. Awesome. We can link to those in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time and your words. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.